I'm on this morning, Tim Surfing, I think. No, good. Um, we're going to have a look at a passage in John's Gospel. I've started putting my sermons on devices rather than paper. I, I don't know, I'm not confident. Things go wrong with devices. <laughs> and so, you know, I don't know whether I'll go back to the old display folder again. We'll see. We're looking at John's Gospel, um, verses 21, verses, uh, sorry, chapter 21, verses 15 to 19 this morning. And in this passage, we have Peter's call to pastoral ministry. You know, it's that, um, that passage, which I'll read a little later on, but uh, where Jesus says, Go feed my sheep, you know, tend to the flock. Um, and I, I, when I read this, I thought, gee, that's fascinating comparing Peter's call to and commission to pastoral ministry compared to what I had to and other Baptist guys had to endure uh, to be accredited, ordained by the uh, Queensland Baptists. Uh, my journey included three years of undergraduate study, full-time at Theological College, followed by uh, postgraduate studies. So this is, the, the, I guess, the process the steps that all of us went through. Uh, so three years full-time, two years part-time while you're ministering in a church, 12 months under an oversight team, two confidential interviews with the Baptist Union in which they ask you about your past and say they're going to put it in a file and put it away and lock the, that file. But just in case there's any legal action later on, we'll pull that file out again. Uh, one a psychological consultation that went for three hours is not typically that long, but, you know, Mrs Mann, they needed an extended time there. <laughs> um, and then uh, we had one day of, we called, seven, we called them the seven deadly doors. It was seven interviews you had with the big wigs in the Baptist Union over one, one day. The secret was, for me, we got through that day relatively easy because we took our little bubbies along with us and most of them just wanted to cuddle and hold the baby and, and talk to us. So that was a good strategy. Uh, there, were, well, there was a medical examination we had to get through as well, annual reports and a final interview with the ministerial committee. And this was uh, to be ordained through the Baptist Union. And there were some guys who went through that entire process and were knocked back in that final uh, interview. And so it was, it was quite tough. And all of this was just to figure out if I was suitable uh, for pastoral ministry, whether or not I was a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, that is, a committed, obedient follower, someone who is instructed uh, by the word of God, someone who seeks to imitate uh, Jesus' attitude and his servant-like qualities, and whether I was a public devotee, uh, did I proclaim, was I happy to proclaim my faith in the public context? Now, when I uh, went through that, what I endured and my friends and, and fellow pastors endured back that time was, I think, necessary and helpful. But it got me thinking as I read this passage about Peter's commissioning, I thought, what does God actually look for? In a person, I wondered when God calls a person to a ministry or a Christian service, 
Does he use the same criteria or standards to measure one's suitability? If not, what does he actually look for? And I thought, let's look at Peter's life and see what he has to offer. He's a biblical example for us, so what can we learn from him as an example to follow in preparation for Christian ministry, something we are all called to, serving both in the church and outside of the church. And I thought, let's see what Peter had to offer. Let's see what Jesus saw in Peter. Excuse me for a moment. This is... Okay, no, I just... So I thought, let's go first of all to Luke chapter 8. Now, you don't have to look up these passages. We're going to stick with, with John's gospel. But I'm going to flick through some passages. Let's get a look at Peter. So in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36, we have the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John accompany Jesus up into a mountain to pray. And as Jesus prays, he's transformed before them, and Moses and Elijah appear with him in this glorious splendor. The appearance of Jesus' face changed, and his clothes, it tells us, became as a flash of lightning. And Peter is overwhelmed with this experience and says, Master, is it good for us to be up here? Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Luke explains in his gospel, he tells us that Peter really didn't know what he was saying. You see, Peter impulsively, without even thinking, really thinking about the implications of what he asked for, suggests that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah remain in this heavenly glory. But Jesus had to suffer. So Peter, at the time, may have thought it was a good suggestion, but he didn't really know what he was talking about. What about in Matthew 16, when Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is? And Peter, impulsive as ever, says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, and Jesus commends him for answering correctly. He actually says to Peter, that answer was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. Furthermore, Peter, I tell you upon this rock, I will build my church. I think Peter must have been pretty impressed with himself with that answer. But then Jesus moves on to predict his death. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. I must be killed and on the third day raised again. And Peter takes Jesus aside and kind of rebukes him. Never, Lord, he says, shall this happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God but the things of men. Commended moments before, now corrected quite abruptly. He spoke without thinking again. He wasn't thinking about God's will or God's plan. But at least he got the first question right. He should have stopped there. What about when Jesus walks on water in Matthew 14? 
The disciples are terrified when they see Jesus walking towards them. It tells us they think he's a ghost. Don't be afraid, Jesus said. It's, it's just me. Okay, Peter, Jesus. It's still pretty, pretty remarkable scene. But Peter, surprisingly, the first to respond, says, Lord, if it's your will, can I get out of the boat and come to you? Peter gets out of the boat. He walks on water towards Jesus. Then it tells us that he saw the waves and the wind and he says, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught him and said to him, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Well, of all the disciples, at least Peter got out of the boat. At least he got out of the boat. What about in John 13 in the upper room where Jesus washes the disciples' feet Motivated by humility, Peter declares, no way, I'm not going to let you touch my feet. I'm not going to let you wash my feet. It's a servant position. That's a servant function. Jesus once again rebukes Peter and then explains to him the significance of what's actually happening. And Peter then goes to the other extreme and pretty much asks Jesus for a bath. What about in Matthew 26, verses 36 to 45 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus takes Peter, James and John a little further into the garden so that they may be with him in his moment of agony in the shadow of the cross. And he says, watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. And what happens? They fall asleep. Twice Jesus asked them to pray. But they fell asleep on both occasions. Why? In Jesus' own words... He says to them, including Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Finally, at the Last Supper, in Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter, whose name is Simon, 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 Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter replies, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison. I'm ready to go with you to death. And Jesus says to Peter, I'll tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny you even know me three times. And that's exactly what happens. Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. The last denial is a curse-filled denial. And Matthew tells us that Peter went out. He wept bitterly. His faith, his commitment, his devotion to God, to Jesus, had it failed? For Peter, absolutely. For Peter, absolutely. He had stumbled, he had made mistakes, he had acted impulsively, but now he had hit rock bottom. He went back to being Peter the fisherman. He went back to being Peter the fisherman. Was Peter a committed disciple? Was he a follower? 
a learner of Christ? Yeah. But he spoke without thinking, often. He didn't think about the things of God, often. He struggled with the imitation part. He has little faith. And he publicly was not a devotee because when it came to the crunch, he denied knowing Jesus. That's not the kind of person you would invite to your church as your pastor. And the state that Peter would have been in, he wouldn't even have applied for the job. He had failed Jesus, he had disowned Jesus, and he had gone back to fishing. He gives up. Now, perhaps Peter is not the best example of what it means to be a disciple of Christ called to serve or minister on behalf of God. Or perhaps Peter's pre-Pentecost experience teaches us that responding to God's call to serve him is not so much about what we bring to Jesus, It's not so much about our abilities. It's not so much about our strengths. It's not so much about our talents or even our limitations and weaknesses. Maybe it's primarily about God's commitment to us. Perhaps Peter's experience teaches us that success in ministry or in service is not about one's credentials, but about God's gracious enabling. Remember after the crucifixion scene, we've just gone through Easter. After the resurrection of Jesus, but before his ascension back to his father, Mary Magdalene mother of, uh, and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices to the grave of Jesus so that they could anoint his body. You remember that? And they find the stone rolled away and an angel says to them, in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, I want you to listen very carefully to the angel's words. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Isn't that interesting? Make sure Peter hears about this. Make sure Peter knows that Jesus wants him there as well. And the disciples have just returned from a night of fishing in John chapter 21. Our passage for this morning, don't worry, that wasn't the intro. We're inductive approach this morning. They just come back from a night of fishing and a stranger from the beach yells out, did you catch anything? I thought, that's, we still ask the fishermen that question, don't we? Have you got anything? And the stranger, they say no. The stranger tells them to cast their nets to the right side of the boat. So they did catch a huge, caught a huge, large number of fish. So large that they were able to bring their uh, their nets in and then it clicks. 
They recognised Jesus and they rushed to the shore. How would you have felt if you were Peter? How would you feel if you were Peter? The last thing he said about Jesus was, you denied him using inappropriate language. We can get from the, the text as well. They have breakfast together. And when they were finished eating, Jesus says to Peter, Peter must have thought, oh, I'm in for, I'm in for a reven here. I'm in for a reven. Let's have a look at John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. Just wondering if we could put that up on the screen if we have that text. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Pointing to the other disciples. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, and here's the call, the commission of pastoral ministry, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, take care of my sheep. The third time he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because, of Jesus, because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. In this exchange of words, this conversation between Jesus and Peter, there is actually a very important play on two Greek words for the word love. In the, the, the uh, Greek language in which the New Testament is generally based, there are about, I think, three or four words for love. But when it's translated into an English version, we just get the word love. So we don't actually see this play on words. Some commentators say, I don't think there's anything in it. But if you know anything about the Gospels, John's Gospel is significantly different from Matthew, Mark and Luke. And one of the differentiating characteristics of John is his use of words, in particular words. You could look at Matthew, Mark and Luke as a historical biography of Jesus. John is a theological unfolding of who Jesus is. And so it's based around significant miracles. And in this exchange, there is, as I said, a play on two important Greek words for love here, which is indicative of John's gospel. The first word is that agape love. You've probably heard that. It's a divine love, and it's best demonstrated in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for our sins. It's the kind of love that becomes part of human experience only by action from God. It's the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Patient, kind, gentle, does not keep records of wrongs, always hopes, always perseveres. You know that list. The other word is a word that is used to indicate genuine care but friendship. 
So there's two types of love actually used in this passage. Twice, Jesus asks Peter if he loves him with that agape, divine, God-given love. That is, he says to Peter, do you love me with the kind of love that I've just demonstrated upon the cross? Peter's reply is that he loves Jesus as one would care deeply for a friend. So Peter actually uses a different word. Yes, he says to Jesus, I deeply care for you. I reckon a once impulsive Peter would have just said, yep, I love you with that kind of love. But this time he thinks about what Jesus asks him. I do care for you. And I think Peter is burdened by his denial of Jesus only days earlier, is now feeling unworthy to gaze upon Jesus and to say that he loves him with that kind of love that Jesus asks. The third time Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Jesus switches the verb from the agape love to more of the caring friendship love word. And Peter says, yes, I do. Isn't it fascinating? So the first two, do you love me with the divine kind of love that I've just demonstrated? And the third time he says to Peter, do you care for me? That's essentially what Jesus says. Then Peter, tend to my lambs, feed my sheep, I commission you. Three times Peter denied knowing Jesus and three times he's being brought to confess his devotion, his commitment, his love to Jesus. Peter's being restored here to a position of leadership and a place of trust. Not because he's completed theological college. Although theological college is good, Tim. Don't don't take me the wrong way there. (laughs) Not because he's proved his ministry ability. Because he clearly hasn't. We've seen in his life with Jesus, the time with Jesus. Not because he's a public devotee to Jesus, because he failed in that as well. Though these things are really, really important, the fundamental reason why he is commissioned to Christian service and ministry is because he's a recipient of God's continuing mercy, grace and equipping. Jesus is facing Peter, I think, with his own limitations. And Peter is saying, I can't love you like that, Lord. I can't love you that way. And perhaps for the first time, Peter's actually being honest with himself, honest with his own limitations and with Jesus. I can't love you like you're asking me, Jesus, but I can do this much. I can do this much. This is a humble self-examination. But now he's ready to entrust himself to Jesus in a new way. Because he is acknowledging his lack of ability, which means he'll rely on Jesus' enabling to do what Jesus asks. 
There's an old story about a water bearer in India who used to carry two large pots. Not a true story, of course. It's like a fable to, to, you know, to teach us a point. And he, on each end of the pole which he carried, he had two pots, one which had a great big crack in it and the other pot was perfect. And he would go down to the river to, to collect the servant two full pots of water and bring them back to his master's house. It was a long walk back from the stream. And when he arrived, the pot with a crack in it only was half full. For two years this went on, and the bearer delivering only one and a half, the servant delivering only one and a half pots of water to his master's house for two years. The perfect pot was proud of its accomplishments, perfect to the end for which it was made. But the poor pot which had a crack in it was ashamed of its own imperfections and miserable that it was only able to accomplish half of what it had been made to do. After two years of what it perceived to be bitter failure, it spoke to the servant one day by the stream. It said, I am ashamed of myself and I want to apologise to you. Why, said the servant, what are you ashamed of? I have been able for these past two years to deliver only half of the portion that I should be able to carry because of this crack in my side which causes the water to leak out all the way back to your master's house. Because of my flaws, you have to do all this work and you don't get full value for your efforts. The servant felt sorry for this pot and in his compassion he said, as we return from, to the master's house today, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the path. Indeed, as they were up the hill, the pot with a crack and it took notice of the sun warming the beautiful wildflowers on the side of the path and this cheered it some. But at the end of the trail, it still felt bad because it had leaked out half of its water and so again, it apologised to the servant for its failure. The bearer said to the pot, did you notice that there were lovely flowers only on your side of the path, but not on the other side? That's because I've always known about your floor and I took advantage of it. I planted flower seeds on your side of the path and every day while we walk back from the stream, you have watered them. For two years, I've been able to pick these beautiful flowers to decorate my master's table. With you being just the way you are, he would not have this beauty to grace his house. Each of us have strengths and abilities, but we also have cracks. We are pots with cracks that the Lord uses, even our flaws, to grace his father's table. D.L. Moody said, our efficiency turns out to be a deficiency unless we have God's sufficiency. Our efficiency turns out to be a deficiency unless we have God's sufficiency. Peter needed to be restored and forgiven, but he also needed to know what he could not do 
to fulfill his calling as a disciple and a pastor without total dependence upon Jesus Christ, to graciously work in and through him. Although he knows he's unworthy, Peter, to follow and serve Jesus, and he knows that he cannot do what Jesus asked him to do, he still humbly obeys. You see, the key to the text, I think, is it's not so much about Peter's ability or lack of. It was about Jesus' commitment to Peter the whole way along and Peter's offering of himself to Jesus in humility and dependence, not on self-reliance. And it's the same with us. When it comes to Christian service, it's not so much about what we bring to Jesus that really matters but rather his grace and what he commits to do in and through us. Remember Jesus' words to Peter? Peter, I've prayed. I've prayed that your faith may not fail. After Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, at Pentecost, we see a different person. Not perfect, but a different person. We see a person whose heart is devoted and dependent upon Jesus. We read of incredible ministry of one whose spirit is willing and so is the flesh. An evangelist in Rome who gave his final witness, if history is correct, of his love and loyalty to Jesus by being crucified on a cross. His arms stretched out as Jesus had told him. His only request was to be crucified upside down for he believed himself unworthy to die in the same position as Jesus, his Lord and Saviour. We see a man through whom agape was expressed, manifested to those whom he served. We see a dependence upon the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit and the charisma or the gifts given to him by God's grace. J. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, said all of God's great men and women have been just normal people who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. They counted on his faithfulness and his omnipotence. Just like Peter, Jesus knows us completely. He knows our strengths, he knows our abilities, he even knows our weaknesses, and he can use them to grace his Father's table. When we humbly and dependently Rely on him in his grace to do that through us. Amen? Amen. Thank you, worship team.